our Friday morning men's group has been meeting now. We're starting on our fourth year going through some different books and meeting to discuss those things together. Jimmy joined us not that long after we began and comes with all sorts of interesting stories surrounding his particular vocation. As he shares more and more stories, it just piques the interest of Dr. Roberts, whose background is in many ways diametrically opposed to Jimmy's. <laughs> and as we were talking, I thought, you know, me always trying to think of how can I raise funds for our summer mission project? How about auctioning off Jimmy for a day? <laughs> and Dr. Roberts said, I'm bidding on that. <laughs> so come to our fish fry on Friday if you have an interest in being a cowboy for a day or encouraging Dr. Roberts to be a cowboy for a day. And I'm sure some great stories will come of that. Our text this evening is from John chapter 14. Last time we were together, we looked at the first 14 verses of that chapter. We'll pick up in verse 15 and read through the end of the chapter this evening. Before reading God's Word, let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Our Father, we give you thanks. Thanks for the truth of your Word. We give you thanks for the finished work of our Lord Jesus. Um, we give you thanks for the tender, ongoing work of the Holy Spirit within our lives. And Lord, what a joy it is to be part of a church family that longs to look at your word of truth and to grow in our understanding and application of such truth. And we acknowledge our dependence, even this night, to to understand these words on the page, we need the Spirit of Christ. To take such words and apply them to our lives, we need the Spirit. To understand how we are called to live, O oh Lord, we look in dependence upon your faithfulness to us, your covenant children, and pray that you would enable us by your goodness and kindness to us to walk more and more in the footsteps of our Savior, in whose name we pray, amen. Let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. John 14, beginning in verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. And that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. 
My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. The word of our God. Please be seated. As we look at John 14 this evening, this latter portion of this chapter, let's remember where Jesus is. He is here with his disciples in the upper room. Back in chapter 13, he humbled himself by removing his outer garment and stooping to wash the feet of the disciples in that great act of humility. He then returned to the place at table with them and instituted the Lord's Supper, that sacrament for the church that they will remember and celebrate until he returns. Judas, that disciple who was among them but never really of them, has departed their midst in order to finalize his plans of betrayal. And so Jesus is left with the eleven true disciples. It is later this very night that he will be betrayed. And while this is the purpose for which he came, his time is now short. His hours are limited. And this is the last opportunity that he has to instruct his dear beloved disciples before his crucifixion. And so in this upper room discourse with his disciples, Jesus is preparing them for his imminent departure. He is preparing them for all that he knows that they will face in the coming hours, days, weeks. Fear, perplexity, temptation to question the plans and purposes of God, confusion, persecution, and trials are going to exponentially increase for them. I think one of the most wondrous things that we learn about our Savior from these chapters in John's gospel is the love that he has for his disciples, the tender love that he displays toward us, his children. Of course, throughout the gospel narratives, you see the love of Jesus from his patient instruction toward the disciples who never really seem to understand what Jesus says to the way in which he tenderly shepherds them throughout his earthly ministry. But when you get to these final hours of his earthly ministry, with the agony of the cross just there upon the horizon, with the wrath of God about to be taken upon himself for their sake, Jesus does not have an introspective focus, but he continues to do what he has always done, lovingly instruct, patiently guide and continue to tenderly minister to his disciples, even with that suffering there just hours away. And one of the greatest means of comfort that will come to the disciples is the person of the Holy Spirit. Now, you know, when you consider any portion of Scripture, there's a sense in which you will never exhaust the Word of God. The Word of God in Hebrews chapter 4 tells us the Word of God is living and active. It has a divine origin. Its depth and riches at times are beyond comprehension. That's not to say that God's Word is unintelligible. We can understand, certainly, the things that God has for us in the pages of Scripture. 
We can know His truth. And yet at the same time, who can say that they have come to understand the depth and the breadth and the height of God's Word? And I think that's particularly evident here in John chapter 14 when we consider what Jesus teaches about the Holy Spirit. There is so much that can be said. We will give our attention tonight really just touching on some important truths about the comfort of the person of the Holy Spirit. And that brings us to our first point this evening, and that is the person of the Holy Spirit. Now, when we think of the Father within the triune nature of God, when we think of the Son, such descriptions make sense to us. Now, certainly there is divine mystery with the Father and Son, but perhaps there is a heightened level of mystery when we think of the Holy Spirit. Perhaps the Holy Spirit seems distant and impersonal. And so it's important for us not to think of the Spirit as an impersonal force like you might encounter in a Hollywood movie. He's not some mystical source of power that you can tap into to use Him for your benefit, either to crush your enemies or promote goodness. Nor is the Holy Spirit a mode of divine existence. While we certainly confess one God, our one God has revealed Himself as triune in nature. It is not as though God at times reveals Himself as the Father, at other times as the Son, and at other times as the Spirit. That's called modalism, which was a heresy condemned by the early church. But rather, our one God is Father, Son, and Spirit, three distinct persons in one Godhead. And so while there is absolute unity between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a unity of will and purpose that we find throughout John's gospel, there is nonetheless a distinction between Father, Son, and Spirit. So what does it mean to call the Holy Spirit a person? Well, simply this, that He is personable, that He is knowable. We can learn things about Him from the Word of the Lord. In the Old Testament, we encounter the Holy Spirit at the very beginning in creation in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. We read that the Spirit of God hovers over the face of the waters and brings order, structure, and design to creation. Throughout the Old Testament, we read about the Spirit guiding and directing the people of God, equipping them for the tasks that they are divinely appointed to. We read of the Spirit in His work of regeneration. In Ezekiel 36, that familiar passage to us, it is the Spirit who removes hearts of stone and replaces them with hearts of flesh. As we move into the New Testament, We see the work of the Spirit in the incarnation of our Savior as the Spirit brings life into the womb of the Virgin Mary. The Spirit is continually with Jesus in His earthly ministry from His infancy all the way to the cross, protecting and guiding, resting and remaining upon Jesus in His earthly ministry, leading Him into the desert to face temptation ministering to Him in those times of need, and then raising our Lord Jesus from the tomb, victorious, vindicating our Savior. Sinclair Ferguson puts it like this, from the womb to the tomb to the throne, the Spirit was the constant companion of the Son. We read in our confessional standards in the Confession of Faith, chapter 3, 
God hath appointed the elect unto glory, redeemed by Christ, effectually called unto faith in Christ by His Spirit working. And it is by this Spirit working, we see the triune God working our salvation as the Spirit takes the eternal decree of God and applies the work of Christ to God's elect, working justification, adoption, sanctification, and working that persevering grace in the lives of His people. And so when you talk about the Holy Spirit, do not talk about Him as an it. Do not say, oh, the Holy Spirit, it's a great thing to have. But rather, He is a great comfort to me. He is the one who is faithful to work in my life. And it is appropriate to go to Him in prayer and to thank Him, to exalt His name for His work of renewal in your own life. It's appropriate to go to Him and to ask Him to illuminate the pages of Scripture for you. It's appropriate to ask Him to help you apply the truth of Scripture to your life. And that brings us to the second point I'd like to focus on this evening, a point that's a little more lengthy as we talk some about things that we learn from the words of Jesus in John 14 about the person and work of the Holy Spirit. What we learn about the person of the Holy Spirit and what He accomplishes in the lives of God's people. Now, theologians often differentiate between the person and work of Christ. That is, the person of Christ in His full humanity and His full divinity, and in the work of Christ, what He accomplishes in that earthly work and what He continues to do as our mediator. And of course, those things are not mutually exclusive from one another. To speak of the person of Christ is to speak of His work, and to speak of His work is to speak of His person. And in the same way, we can speak of the person and work of the Holy Spirit, who He is in His nature and what He accomplishes in the lives of God's people, and yet those things are not mutually exclusive. To speak of who He is is also to touch upon what He does for us, and to talk about what He does for us is to speak about who He is in the life of the believer. So let's look at what Jesus says about the person of the Holy Spirit at the same time learning important truths about His work, His work in redemptive history, and His work in our lives. First, the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Notice that we learn about this procession from the Father and Son in verse 16. Jesus says, I will ask the Father, and He will give you another helper. And then later in verse 26, when the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance things that I have said to you. Now, when we use the Nicene Creed as our confession of faith, as we oftentimes do around the Christmas and Easter season, the creed that gives particular emphasis upon the person and work of Christ, but in that, in speaking about the Spirit, we confess that the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Originally, the creed stated that the Spirit proceeded from the Father, but sometime later it was added, and the Son. Now, that might seem like a minor point, but it created such a rift in the church that in 1054 there's what's known as the Great Schism between the Eastern Church and the church in the West. There's obviously much more involved in that. Our resident historian Bob Macy, I'm sure, has addressed that in some of his teaching on Sunday mornings. So why is it important? 
Why is it important to note that the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son? Well, one, it's biblical. We see it clear, I think, here in these verses as well as other places in Scripture. It's important to understand from a redemptive historical perspective. You see, the Spirit testifies to the work of Christ. The Spirit applies the work of Christ to God's elect. The Spirit is poured out upon the church as the result of the finished work of the Lord Jesus. In John 7, Jesus says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were yet to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. And so we're not talking, as we think about the pouring out of the Spirit on that day of Pentecost, we're not talking simply about something that happens chronologically in the order of church history. But we're talking about the work of the Spirit in the lives of God's people as the result of the finished work of Christ, which has the finished work of the Lord Jesus at its epicenter. Well, what else does Jesus say about the Spirit? Well, second, Jesus says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. By another, Jesus means another of the same kind. Say, for example, that your beloved math teacher has to move in the middle of the school year and your principal comes to the class and says, we have another who will start tomorrow who is very qualified. Now, you don't expect to show up the next day and have a floor lamp standing in the place of where the teacher is supposed to be. You don't expect to have a robot standing there as neat as that might be for a time. But obviously, you expect another of the same kind. You have been told by an authority and you have been assured that someone of that same level of competence will continue what was started. And that's what Jesus means by another The Holy Spirit is another who will continue to do what Jesus has done. Teach, guide in truth, bear witness to God's plan of redemption, convict the world of sin, make his home with the believer. These are all things that Jesus does, things that he has said previously throughout John's gospel. These are things that the Holy Spirit does as he is another in the same category as Christ himself. And so just think for a moment about what a comfort this is to Jesus' disciples. While they will be immensely sorrowful when Jesus departs, they will not be left alone. Another, like the very Jesus whom they dearly love, is coming to them. And third, he is another helper. And most translations capture here this Greek word paraclete as another helper or another comforter. And the Greek word paraclete is a rich and nuanced word. It can mean comforter, counselor, advocate, prosecutor, helper. A paraclete is one who comes to the aid or defense of another, one who comes to strengthen those who are in need of comfort. Turn one page over to John chapter 15 verse 26. Jesus says, but when the helper comes, 
whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. And so notice here that the Spirit in that role as paraclete, as witness bearer, that he bears witness about Christ just as the disciples will bear witness about Christ. So what does it mean to bear witness to Christ? Well, in ancient times, trials were conducted not with lawyers who were experts in the law, sometimes only they are the ones who understand what they're talking about, but rather trials would proceed with witness bearers who would come, either one who was an eyewitness to such account, either in prosecution or defense, or one who would come more as a character witness to that one who is being accused, the one who is on trial. And he would speak with authority because he knows the one who is on trial. And so the disciples, you see, will bear witness to Christ, and they have the authority to do so because they have been with him from the beginning of his public ministry. The Spirit is best suited to be that witness for Christ because he was with Jesus throughout his entire earthly ministry and even beyond, of course, to his entire incarnation his entire life upon earth, and even back into eternity. And as Jesus says there in John 15, He will equip the disciples as they bear witness to the risen Christ. And so that which the Spirit has done for the Son, Jesus says, He will now do for the disciples. The Holy Spirit comforts when times of discouragement arise. The Holy Spirit counsels bringing conviction within our hearts by exhorting us and teaching us how we are to live. The Holy Spirit is an advocate or prosecutor pointing out our sin and driving us again to see our need for the grace of the Lord Jesus. The Holy Spirit is our defender, defending us against those false accusations when the conscience leads us to believe that how can we be in Christ and do such a thing, or when we hear accusations from the evil one. The Holy Spirit does this and much more. And fourth, also in verse 16, we learn that the Holy Spirit is with God's people forever. Why is this an important thing for us to know? Because He is the one who works persevering grace in our lives, holding us close to Him to the very end. There might be times in our lives when it does not feel as though the Holy Spirit is within our hearts. We might go through great discouragement and even periods of rebellion against God, questioning Him. But if our faith is in Christ, the Holy Spirit is with us to the very end. We read in Ephesians 1 verses 13 and 14 that the Holy Spirit seals us for that final day. The Holy Spirit is like a down payment. He's like a deposit guaranteeing that which is to come. Let's say that you're driving by a garage sale and you see that, that trinket, that little widget of whatever you've been collecting, the one that you've been missing that will make your collection complete. In itself, it's really not that valuable, but to you it has value because it will complete your set. And you pull over and you realize that you don't have any cash on you. And so you go to the lady running the garage sale and you say, take my cell phone, take my wallet, I'll keep my driver's license, but I have the money at home, I just live a few moments away, I'll be right back. Well, what is she going to do? Of course, 
She will set that item aside. She knows that you'll be back because those things are much more valuable than the item itself. In the same way, the Holy Spirit is much more valuable than you or I. And He is the down payment, the deposit, the guarantee that we will receive this inheritance when Christ returns. Well, what else does Jesus teach us about the Holy Spirit? Well, look at verse 17. Here, Jesus says that He is the Spirit of truth. Just as Jesus earlier in this chapter in verse 6 said, I am the truth. So the truth is the Holy Spirit as well. He is the one of truth. Well, what does this mean? It means that the Spirit will guide us in truth. He upholds the truth. He teaches that which is true. He cannot and He will not lead or direct in a way that is contrary to God's Word. And this is important because when you have desires or thoughts that are contrary to God's Word, do not assume that the Holy Spirit is the one who is guiding you and directing you in that manner. Perhaps you have thought this way in your own life. No doubt you have encountered others in your own life who think this way, who are convinced that God, that the Spirit would not allow them to have such feelings if it was contrary to His will. Well, the Spirit will not guide, again, and direct in a way that is contrary to the truth of God's Word. He will not lead in a way that is opposed to the very Scriptures of the Lord. Well, what else do we learn? Again, in verse 17, He is the Spirit of truth who dwells with us and in us. Look as well again at verse 23. Jesus answered, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Andreas Kostenberger says that the role the Spirit plays in relation to the disciples is analogous to the role he played in relation to Jesus during his earthly ministry. You see, the Spirit and the Father remained with Jesus during the entirety of that earthly ministry, and soon it will be the Spirit, the Father, and Jesus who will remain with the disciples. The Spirit came to Jesus because of the love of the Father. The Spirit will come to the disciples because of the love of the Father and the Son. And so the Spirit relates to the disciples as He relates to Jesus because of their vital union with Him and because of His saving work on their behalf. And Jesus later on gives some very practical instruction on what this indwelling of the Holy Spirit does for God's people. Verse 26, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Again, this points to the consistency between the teaching of Jesus and the ongoing ministry of the Holy Spirit. He will explain things that they did not at first understand. One example is back in John chapter 2, when Jesus cleansed the temple, He said, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And we read in verse 22 of John 2 that when He was raised from the dead, the disciples remembered that He had said this, and they believed the Scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. And so He brings not only understanding, but He brings recollection of what the disciples heard 
in Jesus' earthly ministry. This is why John is able to write with such detailed account these discourses of Jesus. It's not because John has a photographic memory, but because the Holy Spirit inspires bringing that recollection into the Apostle John. In the Holy Spirit's dwelling with us, He continues to work, not inspiration, but remembrance and understanding. We learn more about the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit in verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And so as the Holy Spirit dwells with us, He brings us a peace that drives out all fears. He helps us to understand that we have peace with God, a peace that surpasses worldly understanding. It's an objective peace that we read in places like John chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. So while the Spirit dwells with us, while the Spirit dwells in us, while the Spirit comforts and while we know Him, Jesus says at the same time, the Spirit is rejected by the world. Again, verse 17, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. One author says that those who live according to the wisdom of this world have a distinct world and life view which is in opposition to the revelation of the cross. The message of the crucified Savior is repulsive to the ears of the world. Turn with me, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 beginning in verse 6. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would, have not, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Natural man does not understand because he has the mind of this world. Spiritual man accepts the things of God because he has the mind of Christ. 
And he has the mind of Christ because the spirit of Christ dwells within. And the world is suspicious of all this talk about the Holy Spirit because they do not understand that which they do not see. They have rejected Christ, the Lord of glory. And in rejecting Christ, they have rejected the spirit of Christ. And they remain hardened toward God and remain under the wrath of God. Well, there's so much more, obviously, that can be said about the person and the work of the Spirit. But one last thing to consider briefly, and that is the calling of this text from John chapter 14. Notice this formula that Jesus states several times throughout this section. Verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Verse 21, if you have my commandments and keep them, you love me. Verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Verse 24, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. You see a theme here, don't you? If you love Jesus, how will that love be made evident? Heartfelt obedience to his word. And if you are obeying the word of the Lord, well, what does that reveal about your heart? Well, that you love Him. You can't have one without the other. You can't say, I love God while you have no regard for His Word and live your life any way that you please. And a great question to ask yourself throughout your earthly life is this, do I love God? When I look at what Jesus did for me to save me from my sins, do I long to respond in love toward Him because He has first loved me? And if I do love him, how is that love being made evident in my life? Do I long to obey him? Are there areas of my life that I think are my own? Where am I living for self-glory with self at the center of my life instead of God's glory? And ask the Holy Spirit to help you become more aware of areas of life in which you need to walk in greater obedience, in greater love toward Jesus. Loving Jesus, obeying Jesus, having faith in Jesus are all elements of the whole. You cannot love Him without also trusting and obeying Him. You cannot obey Him without also loving and trusting Him. You cannot trust Him without loving and obeying Him. Joel Beakey, in his little book, Living by God's Promises, a book that the men just finished on Friday mornings and a, a book that the women are just starting on Tuesdays for their small groups, he writes this, God's regeneration of a person is nothing other than his taking possession of that person's heart to make it his dwelling place and his temple. We read in Ephesians 2, verse 22, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Beaky goes on, the necessary consequences of the indwelling Spirit is that He promises and secures our sanctification. God cannot dwell in our hearts by His Holy Spirit without renovating and purifying it with His holy influence. As God's people... May we look in faith, love, and obedience to our faithful Savior and to the spirit of comfort who is with us forever. 
Amen.